Finally, a podcast about civics education. Said no one ever. Until now. This is the Civics Factor, exploring what democracies need to actually solve our problems. This is the Civics Factor, and this is your host, Mark McGinnis. Claire's here to talk about a a course that she helped organize um, on science literacy, and this came about to me from an article in the uh, Edmonton Journal, Um, and it immediately caught my attention because even though it doesn't quite talk about a lot of the the uh, politics that's of what's going on um, it's embedded and just weave throughout if you are literate in science then you have I think an appreciation for uh, for being wrong for have some humility some understanding that uh, uh, how you identify yourself in relation to the world isn't going to quite be respected by the evidence or the outcomes of either experience, experiments, or history. And science calls us forward to reevaluate how we approach any number of given issues, all of our even internal beliefs that we have. And if you want to solve a problem, if you want to be a good problem solver, my bet is that you probably want to have some handle on the evidence. You want to be able to lay it out in front of you, organize it, ask yourself some questions, even uncomfortable ones, And you have to work with other people who also have those same tools or very different or no tools at all. And I think in a democracy, we should be each cultivated to have some appreciation for group problem solving and the necessary skills that are involved in that. Because at the end of the day, we are not only choosing for ourselves what we think is right. We're also delegating power to people who we have to believe are going to follow through on the things that they say they're going to do. They're either going to administrate things very well, they say, or they're going to solve our problems. And if they don't, what recourse do we have? What tool set do we have? And all of that goes back to, I think, the skills, competencies that can be gained by becoming something we call science literate, but could be termed critical thinking, could be termed, you know, just adding common sense to experience and history. So I want to touch on all these things here. Um, Claire, thank you very much for being with me today. Thanks. Thanks for having me. Is there anything I missed in uh, the intro about what, what you've done with the University of Alberta? Um, I I guess like, uh, yeah, this was a, this was almost like a side project that I did. Um, I I'm an instructor in uh, psychology in the faculty of science. And um, I, yeah, I've been teaching in psychology for almost six years now um, at a couple of different universities in Alberta. And um, I also do research, I'm a neuroscientist. So I also do uh, research at the university as well. Um, I do a lot of work with rodent um, and human models of learning and memory and sleep. Um, There's a surprising, overlap right between rat brains and human brains yeah 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 oh, okay yeah. yeah so uh that's i i study a lot of like the biochemical um uh actions and so yeah animal models are are needed <laughs> yeah sure. yeah no it's uh I, i'm certainly not questioning that it's it's you know it's kind of funny the way we have the uh, same thing with like rat city do you remember that oh, yeah. experiment about um yeah, that yeah, yeah. And I think yeah. one of the interesting, yeah, Rat Park. And so the the interesting thing I think they did with that was um, they they gave everything a structure. They gave 
uh, all these rats here. Um, also a sense of resource scarcity and an understanding of like where their food is coming from. And, uh, and so there's a lot of sociological study on like, you put in these external stressors, you put in these, these little things that create these dynamics. And what do people do with it? Sometimes it helps with their flourishing and other times their environment causes them to eat each other. Yeah. Um, I can't remember if that was Rat Park, but uh, like Rat Park was um, addiction. It was uh, yes, they, addiction, yeah, yeah. They started. They started to uh, yeah, like kind of make their resources scarce, make any novelty scarce, inc increase stressors in the environment, and then they gave them access to like water that was laced with heroin. And uh, most of the rats that were in an environment that had like the park, the Rat Park, were like. Eh. I don't really care for this heroin water <laughs> and then, like the rats in this impoverished like really stressful situation just just sucked on this heroin water and it was like very clear that um that this like environment was like kind of pushing them in that direction and when they were moved into a rat park they stopped really caring for the heroin water but shouldn't we stop politicizing science uh <laughs> yeah i mean in that like i mean the rat park's a good example of that like we had this really clear set uh i mean it's at this point it's a little bit contested and you know again that's the way science works right you have you have this like one really like amazing study that gives uh, gets a huge amount of press like oh my god the rat park and like you give the rats a, a lot of fun and look they're less addicted to things and it gave a lot of like excitement um, there was follow-up studies that kind of tried to like tweak different variables to show like maybe it's this or maybe it's that and again this that's good that's the point is to like we can't just be like okay let's throw all the anyone with an addiction into a park and that'll solve all their problems we can't just like take these these headlines that show up on the news and apply it to the societal problems we have today although that's like what science literacy is for right like you have this like finding that is supported by scientific evidence and we can think about like how can we enact a policy to really make use of this in in our society and like actually like practice this knowledge so that um it's going to get us somewhere and get us absolutely ahead. yeah i, um, I said it, it's evidence-based policy making is to right. look at all the implications and understand what evidence base there there is for how these things play out in the real world because and I, I use this analogy often, it's it's like such an obvious one, but in every society, there's kind of a pyramid for how decisions are made. And, you know, the higher you go, the more consequential those decisions can be to everybody else in the pyramid. And so the people who are at the top or at the top on the inside making these decisions, for them to be able to hear evidence of, oh, this is how it's working out and it's not meeting the outcomes that we said it's going to meet, or it's just not working out and we should do something about it it becomes a, a policy gap or policy issue. It's something now to resolve. And uh, we do have, uh, you know, in, in our societies, um, both a government and a elected government, um, one's really meant to oversee the administration of it. And what they can do is a ton of policy analysis internally to go, here's how these things are actually working out in the real world. And then that has to go up to the, um, the elected government to go and sometimes they will, or most often they set the direction of whether or not they want to address these certain things in certain areas. And they have to be confronted with a decision about, well, here's how it's actually working out for everybody else in the pyramid. What do you want to do? And if those people choose poorly, it can affect everybody else. 
Um, so I want to talk about the education budget. No, I'm kidding. We don't have to go there. Um, <laughs> no, it's, it's, honestly, it's all of these things, right? Like you have this evidence to suggest, all right, like let's take let's just take a good hard look at the evidence. What does it say that this policy has done? And if it's not adding up, then this is like a really good time to reevaluate rather than to like dig our heels in and just like bury our head in the sand, um, which is, I don't know, it's, it's weird because in politics, it seems like it's, that's politicized. Like that part is what is politicized is like the fact that this politician is so staunch in their ways that they refuse to like concede to evidence. And like that to me is a red flag that like that is not someone we should have <clears throat> in charge of any decisions <laughs> like um sure they can like maybe be a voice in the crowd and that's like a voice and you in the don't crowd. see that as as left versus right like you see this oh. as just like this person is capable of making good decisions and good problem solving right. or not like it's a leadership quality exactly like, and and so did you ever like were you always a, a political person or did this kind of come out differently um not to be honest not really um i I grew, I uh, lived in the States for about, I guess almost 15 years and um, before moving back to Edmonton and um, that I kind of, uh, looking back on it, I was really oblivious to politics in Canada for sure. And um, even the politics there, even though I had to study it to get citizenship, I had to still like, I mean, I know it knew more than I probably would have had I not studied it, but like it was, I was oblivious to like what the level of decision-making meant or like what, what result, what the result of that was. And, um, I moved back here and, uh, Alberta's government flipped for the first time to NDP, like right after I moved back and the changes that were like, that everyone was talking about around me, like, I didn't know, but it was like the changes everyone was talking about around me. I was like, Oh, wow. Like that's impressive that like a, a change in government can actually have this big of, a change at least at the level of like we were in post-secondary ed I was like wow there's some big changes that were being put forth that were, were positive as well as for healthcare, as well as for just like education I have kids and I was really really happy about a lot of the childcare benefits we had and so I mean to me I was like yeah this is this is nice new new government kind of thing different from what I was getting in the states in general and then um shortly after that Trump got elected then uh that really was like uh, eye-opening to watch what happened because you saw I actually you had to actually experience what it's what is this political structure in the states at least and then I started to draw parallels to like how does that how does that actually translate to here like who is making the decisions how do these decisions actually get enacted um, what is the what's the process towards putting these decisions forward um, to be put into law um, and um, how many, yeah, like there's so many elected officials in this chain, as well as like government officials in this chain, um, that there, it became, yeah, kind of of interest to me. I just started to get curious, like to ask more questions, like, how does this work? Who makes this decision? <laughs> like, and like, why would they make this decision if we know otherwise, you know, like, so, um, if there's like so mountains of evidence to suggest this is a poor decision, why would they make this decision? And, um, same with like when the, um uh our like the our as the alberta government was starting to like gear up for its next um election that became this really like kind of toxic thing where it was like it was it was kind of like um 
it yeah the science got politicized at that point and um same with the trump administration too it seems like the science is what was getting politicized which was just confusing to me as a scientist um that like that we have so much evidence to suggest we should be acting on climate change or that we should be acting on these socioeconomic divides or that we should be acting on um pulling children out of poverty or whatever like the mountain or like treating addictions or safe injection centers or whatever the millions of things that have been like oh we should do this no we're going to scratch it like all these things that they keep kind of throwing it into the into the bathwater as if it's it's a bad idea because it costs money rather than the fact that like we know that this may have larger implications that may benefit us and society overall um, based off of scientific evidence, um, why are we still ignoring it? Um, and I started to eventually, as I started to learn more about it, I realized like, you know, like local government is really where you want to act. Like if we really want to make a difference, um, we need to be talking to like what the people that actually um, can make the change here in like where I am right now. Um, and so I started to get a little more involved in city politics, following the city's politics. Um, and I then started to kind of uh, show up to um, some of the chamber events in, this, in the city um, to, again, just provide scientific arguments. For like, um, if, you, if we're talking about lowering the speed limit, here's a lot of scientific evidence to suggest it's a good idea to lower the speed limit. And I cannot believe the city councilors still did not agree to lower the speed limit to the levels that the science would suggest is the safest speed limit. Instead, they wanted to keep the speed limit in this happy medium where they wouldn't upset too many drivers and it was still uh, lower than this toxic maximum, the toxic of 50 kilometers an hour that could like kill a child if it was in their neighborhood. Um, and now they're, we, the science suggests 30 kilometers an hour would, would be very safe if it, if it did hit someone, it might have a 20% chance of this person being injured or killed rather than 50%. And um, so like lower the, any, any lower below 30 kilometers an hour, this is really, this is going to be the safest residential speed limit. That is what the science overwhelmingly suggests. And our city ran a bunch of studies to show like if you had, um, if you had even, if your whole route was altered so that everything was 30 kilometers an hour, this is how much time you would lose. And it was like minutes. It was like, it was so little time that would actually change for most drivers. And the city still refused. The city still refused to do it um, as, as much as we have a very liberal leaning council. Um, they uh, refused to acknowledge the science because- It's kind of like they protected the interest of fun. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but don't you think exactly. if we implement all evidence-based policy, then we just kind of make life a little less fun? That's, and I mean, that's the argument too, right? There's like a South Park episode about that where like uh, they, they like everything is science. Every, it's like a, the let go, let God, I think. It's like the series oh. where they, they've dropped God altogether and science is what drives all decision-making. Um, and it's boring. You can tell, <laughs> you can tell that life is like a little... Uh, more boring. But at the same time, if we all are just evaluating evidence and our conversations are kept to the evidence rather than like some arbitrary, like subjective idea of fun or whatever it is the argument is, at least we're all talking about the same thing. I guess that's what is frustrating to me having making these arguments or watching these arguments go why you're like they're you're not talking about the same thing so we're not going to move forward at this point if we can't even agree on the evidence that we think we have. 
And do you I think, think that's the problem. Yeah. And I'm, I'm wondering if maybe you saw this with uh, with the election of Donald Trump, but um, this kind of emphasis on we can just choose our own realities. Like I'm, I'm choosing which media bubble, which media diet I have. And that's informing my understanding of what's going on in the world and what we can do about it. Um, and if I collide with somebody else, it's like I've, I've learned to only be crappy to that person. Like I, I've only right. learned how to be really defensive about my views um, and to either try and find some like, you know, logical fallacy thing to pinprick the other person and, and sort of like entrench. Right. Um, and this is to me like you, you, we need science literacy and we need also some kind of literacy in regards to how we come together to talk about issues. Right. And uh, so I'm wondering, like, what, what's your, what's your, I, I guess, observation about, um, you know, is is uh, is reality objective, or <laughs> can we just choose, you know, our own our own evidence making? Um, like to a degree, that's that's what we do anyway, right? Um, the way I've tried to deal with it, because yeah, that's the thing. You're in a social media bubble. You're in this echo chamber that it's just a bunch of people who are like minded. And so you, when you finally go out in the real world and you realize there's people that aren't like you, you're like, what the, <laughs> like there's something wrong. And part of that is like, we're primed by the social media bubbles that we're in, right? Like our social media bubble is telling us like, you're doing well because you think like this and here's all of these ideas that we all agree on and they're just getting pushed on us all the time. And in the same way that the other bubbles that exist, um, those social media bubbles are like, yes, the election was a fraud. There's all this tampering that's going on in the election. And so that's what's being said in those bubbles. So people are primed to think that way. If, if it happened or not, they're primed to think that way because they've heard it so many times. And so part of it is like, we should step out of our bubbles. I like part of it is to like, just not go there. <laughs> um, but even still, like you go to like what you think is kind of like this, um, maybe not maybe it's not, maybe this is more open. Like I'm on, I'm on a newspaper site or something, and maybe this is more balanced information. It's not necessarily, we, we know that there's motives behind an editor or that there's, that maybe there are political leanings and that maybe that is polluting it. And so maybe that's not, maybe that's not the best. Um, and so to be honest, there, it's, it's kind of like there's a bigger, there's a bigger problem and, and facts don't matter to people anymore and evidence doesn't necessarily matter to people anymore. It's more like what is, yeah, reality saying matters. Um, and I don't know how you get people out of that. I mean, technically science literacy and critical thinking would just immediately, it should immediately like bring skepticism to you if you're like, wow, everyone agrees with me. That seems weird. Like that should seem weird. <laughs> like we should question it when everyone agrees with you. Um, and like, it's just, it's suspect if everyone agrees with you really like no one's, no one's upset by this idea. Like then, then you could play your own devil's advocate, which is one way to do it. Um, and that's a lot more effort. Um, but in theory that, that should be what we should do. Like if you don't agree with someone else, it's like up to us to, find the evidence of disproof it's not up to them to just to show us why we're wrong it's up to us <laughs> like it's i, up I to have us a kind of through that yeah i i have a kind of like um i don't know if it's mean but i this idea that like you gotta raise the lowest common denominator for what we understand about you know like politics and 
like civic literacy and civics education is kind of that thing. Like public school is, has, and has been that institution where we just go across and we go, all right, we want all people to know how to read. We want all people to have some kind of numerical literacy. We want all people to have some kind of, you know, like it's, it's the same thing with driving. Like you have to have some training and, and practice in order to be good at, in order to be trusted to do it. We don't do that with voting um, because we gave everybody the vote, but there's an evolution from having to fight tooth and nail for the right to vote and holding on to that appreciation over generations and possibly austerity in your school budgets, possibly like, so for us to be able to, I guess, you know, come up somehow naturally with this value of here's my democratic system. I know how to use it. I know how to preserve it. And this is what I look for in a good leader. It's not natural. And we, we have to put in some thinking for how can we increase that lowest common denominator to, to raise it up a little bit, because maybe then like, you know, it's a nice fantasy anyway, maybe then things would be different. Maybe the outcomes of people's discussions um, and their leadership races would be different. And the way politics has to interact with citizens would be different if they can't pull over you know, a fast one on people. I wanna take a moment and talk to you about opinions. I wanna let you know that it is okay to change your opinions without having to change your identity. Because what is an opinion? An opinion is like a snapshot in time of the judgment you had with the information you had at the time. And it's okay to change your opinions if you've been confronted, even by people you don't like, with information that supersedes the information you had when you made that opinion, when you formed that opinion. As responsible citizens in a constructive democracy, we have to accept that nobody has a monopoly on the truth or the evidence. And if we can have that humility in understanding what an opinion is, then we can change our opinions without it being such a hit to our egos. And maybe if we did that, we wouldn't have so much political deadlock in our countries. And if we did that, maybe our politics would be more constructive than what it is now. You know, there's that line that opinions are like everyone's got one. Well. Opinions are like everyone's got one, and it's our responsibility to make sure we don't have a one. Which is why I'm happy to announce my partnership with Tushy, the makers of a bidet attachment for your toilet. Say goodbye to toilet paper. Say goodbye to hemorrhoids. Bidets are the future, especially when toilet paper supplies are running direly low for no good reason. Be civilized. Get a Tushy. Don't use wet wipes. They're terrible for the environment. Get a Tushy. Go to hellotushy.com slash civicsfactor and get 10% off your order. That's hellotushy.com slash civicsfactor and get 10% off your order. You're listening to The Civics Factor with Mark McGinnis. What is it that um, Indigenous uh, perspectives bring to science, science literacy? So, yeah, we, we, we brought in the idea of Indigenous perspectives. It's just like, um, it's a way of, uh, like, if we think of like Indigenous knowledge or traditional knowledge, um, their means of acquiring knowledge over tens of thousands of years, and, or not tens of thousands of years, or 10,000 years um, or more, um, ha- and the use of oral traditions and um, how the archaeological ev- evidence really matches these oral traditions um, pretty well. Um, there is actually really good, um, there's really good evidence to support the idea that this is like a, actually a very valid way of also acquiring knowledge. It's not, science isn't the only way we can acquire knowledge. We can acquire knowledge through, through experience as well. Um, there's a fine line between acquiring knowledge through like 
um, are anecdotes <laughs> and using only anecdotes as, as ways of sharing information, which is something that politicians do all the time as this really, really, really useful tool of sharing information and getting people on your side. But as a scientist, we're like, that's not evidence. That's, that's useless to me to hear an anecdote about some random person. Um, and so I think the issue with like, uh, in, I guess it's not an issue, but I guess a, a potential misconception is like, well, what's the difference? Is it, are indigenous oral traditions really just anecdotes? And no, not really, because these, these are oral traditions that have been shared um, across generations that have been often um, read have often been re-experienced across generations and oftentimes the practice of this knowledge or the this knowledge itself is embedded in their practices which means that they're constantly testing the use of this is this knowledge useful and if it's if it's not useful anymore then then they change um and so um they tend to use this kind of collective experience as a way or they've been using this collective experience as a way of accumulating knowledge and now we have um, knowledge, what are knowledge keepers or indigenous knowledge keepers and elders um, that have this wealth of knowledge that um, is um, is still of use to to indigenous people and actually is still now scientists are going to them to be like, hey, um, why is it that this plant is used? What were the practices this plant was used for? And oh, like, well, we would use this if someone was feeling this or that. And then the scientists go and try to look at these symptoms and they're like, oh, those symptoms actually overlap a lot with diabetes. Oh, it turns out this plant is actually really effective at lowering blood sugar. And it's like, it's like, so like, even though the indigenous knowledge doesn't have like the biochemical knowledge or know-how, it still has like, again, this like these generations of practice that have kind of done some level of experimentation to, to a degree um, that is actually useful knowledge. And it's some, it's knowledge that scientists need to start having dialogue with that if scientists actually start to communicate more with the knowledge keepers that are around, we can actually come up with a lot of solutions uh, with really a lot of things that are in nature. Um, and so we don't necessarily need to be like, you know, like, you know, synthesizing new compounds uh, to to treat disorders, um, even like antivirals or like there's tons of antivirals and fungus that like indigenous people have been using in teas for sicknesses for for years. And so like those, I, I know some of these, uh, some of the, the antivirals that are in fungus um, that grows in the birch bark here that is being tested right now for like anti-COVID properties and stuff. So like there's not, um, it's it's not necessarily, the reason we included indigenous knowledge is mostly because um, we talk about in the course, like there's ways of accumulating information. We can use science um, and it's really strict and it leaves out bias. And we have this really strong method of acquiring like empirical evidence. Um, and we go about, and then we kind of test this evidence and blah, 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 blah. Um, but there's also, you know, there's lots of things that we know that we couldn't possibly have tested with science. And so we have to kind of talk about that. Um, and so we kind of use that um, indigenous bridge there and uh, also comment on the fact that it's like, that this indigenous knowledge isn't just metaphysical. It's not just like, you know, it's not just spiritual the way that a lot of people consider it. Um, and even though there's spiritual um, ideas embedded in it, it, it tends to still have the experience in it as well that actually is really rich in knowledge for us to, to make use of. And um, we also kind of comment on, um, which I think is relevant here, is uh, we comment on the fact that indigenous um, leaders, they um, have, have always been 
the type to look seven generations ahead. So every, every decision that is made is made with the thought that how will this affect seven generations from now? And can you imagine, <laughs> period, um, think of the, the evidence that our leaders have today and the modeling that they have today. And they can look into the future with the models that they have and the evidence that we have now. They can look, they can look at, they can look more, not even seven generations, but they can look at least a couple generations ahead and they can decide, you know, like, wait, maybe we should curb down our carbon emissions or like, maybe we should act now. Um, or, um, you know, there's a lot of different policy decisions that we could make knowing how it would affect the future, but we don't because it would cost money now or something like that. And I, I, I think a lot of people would have trouble imagining two generations from now, let alone, yeah, you know, exactly. the existence of, um, things looks pretty, pretty dire when you start to put together a picture. And uh, I'm thinking back earlier, it's like people, uh, I mean, people don't really listen to the evidence when they have to admit that they're wrong, or when yes. they have to admit that, like to some great embarrassment. And politics is unfortunate, like you're taking maybe some of the most insecure people on the planet, and you're making them <laughs> like stand on something that will ruin their career, ruin their ability to make money after they leave office, um, make them look really, to admit that they're wrong, but being wrong is just a part of life. And it's like, yeah. you don't, you're not ever going to get some kind of monopoly on, on the truth of the evidence. Um, so the idea that like you would be unscientific about how it is, uh, it, it, I mean, so much of it has to do with like identity and I guess insecurity and, and just kind of the those stressors of like, you know, um, you're incentivized to gain power. And how do you do that? Well, if you're a political party, you hire these consultants who understand polling, who understand marketing, who understand psychology. And these are people who are actually paying a lot of psychologists and psychiatrists to figure out and, and come up and devise and learn from science, but they're doing it in a way to, I guess, take advantage of people, yes. take advantage of voters to get them to delegate power to somebody that is not going to be acting in good faith is not going to follow through. So maybe you have some thoughts on, on that particular aspect of political marketing. Is that something that you look at in, in psychology? Um, not myself. Um, I, I think I sent you his name, David Rast, um, Dr. David Rast. He's in our department and he, um, he studies, uh, he studies the effects of uncertainty on, um, how it kind of influences people in following like an authoritarian leader. Um, or, uh, you know, falling into it, falling into an extremist group, um, and how people like basically fall into a group identity, like a political group or, um, so we had him, uh, as like a guest in, in the course, um, as well, but, uh, his, his, I guess what was interesting talking, having, having had a lot of conversations with him, um, is that he says that a lot of his work, even though it's psychology, it's all psychology, it, um, he gets asked to come to um, business schools and to these like large corporations um, to give these, to share this information. Um, and it's, it's clearly for like this kind of more nefarious use of like, how can we manipulate people to think that we're good guys? And, um, and um, again, the, the kind of overarching theme is you put in you you fuel you inject uncertainty into the atmosphere you make people think that you're the solution to that uncertainty and you're the you're the solution to all the problems in their life um and you make it seem like it's the opposite group's problem um, or fault that this happened and uh you say it enough times and prime the the people enough that that they believe it and when there's enough uncertainty 
there's enough stress and you just are more, you can't possibly consider all the options when you're uncertain and you're in your stress. You tend to just go into these knee jerk situations like, okay, I don't know. They seem to know what's going on. They've said enough things that I like to hear. I'm just going to go with that guy, regardless of, of the evidence or regardless of like some of the other stuff. I know this guy's a bad guy for a list of reasons. I know like the fact that 64 million people plus voted for Trump, there's not 64 million people who want like immigrant ch children in cages or all the other like horrible things that we know Trump may have been involved with. Um, but they like the one or two other things that he said. It sounds like there's a lot of uncertainty. It sounds like he's the solution to this uncertainty. I don't like the one or two things Biden said. And so I'm going to just like stay in my group and dig my heels in because of how uncertain this environment is. And so when you see these, like, um, when you see, when you, I, to me at this point have, especially having spoken to David and following his research, it's, it's so obvious. Every single authoritarian leader, that's what they're doing. Anytime they look like they're losing power, they just inject uncertainty into the, into the environment. They, they say there's some problem. And Trump has been for months warning people of election fraud and telling people this election fraud's coming, this election fraud's coming and everyone's uncertain. No one even knows if they should even bother voting because they don't know if their vote's getting counted. And it's, it's influential. The more, in, the more uncertain you can make the populace, the more likely you can be to influence them. And so it can, yeah, it can totally be used against us. And that's like exactly what you watch these, like we're gonna see this if the Canadian federal election starts to ramp up too, you're gonna see certain party leaders try to inject this fear and this uncertainty about how the current government is running things and how they're, and again, the idea is to say that, yes, I am the solution. I am the better leader for the country. The problem is, is, is if they're using these like these fake foils <laughs> as like the reason they should take over. Um, and so um, I don't, I like, I don't, I can't even like predict um, what, the problem could be but like immigration for example like oh they're letting so many immigrants in they're taking our jobs all the canadians now are not going to have as many jobs vote for me i'll make sure that's not a problem anymore and now you got a bunch of people on your side you say that enough times you come up with another couple other things that are uncertain and now no one is going to be chasing down the evidence to actually ask the question is this true or not they just are following these sound bites and so when it's more uncertain, people can't evaluate all of the evidence. And so I think like, again, yeah, the more transparent a political leader can be, the technically the more power they should have over the people. The fact that they're able to like share, this is the information, this is the way it is. I think that's why Canadians are loving these chief medical officers show up because they're like the only people that have given us very clear information because if you look at what the premiers are saying, I don't care what party they're from, they tend to paint a different picture. Um, and they tend to paint this again, more um, fearful picture, or they tend to paint this more like rosy picture, whatever they're trying to push. Um, but they, they tend to sound very different than the chief medical officer who is just talking in numbers, who is just talking and this is what we know, this is what our evidence suggests, this is what we've seen, um, this is what we've seen in other countries, and they're just talking about the pure evidence. Um, we, as a populace, are loving it. Like, <laughs> we, like the ratings for these, for these live deliveries of the chief medical officer are, are huge. And like people tune into them every single day compared to like having the premier be like, I'm not sure 
if we should maybe do a lockdown or not. And I'm feeling like whatever it is, we're looking down, we're having a really hard time and all these things. It's like, if we know there's a, yeah, like there's, there's a, a concept in sociology called front stage and backstage. And it's from like Irving Goffman's dramaturgical analysis or something where it's like, when you see a politician talking to you, what you're getting is the public consumption. So like, it's the stuff that's public facing. That's what the public is supposed to consume. It's not their sort of like backstage talk where they're among each other in their caucuses going, how do we, you know, frame this for our benefit? Like how, what is, what are the other guys going to say? How are we going to respond to that? When you get a chief medical officer going up in front of people, it turns out people actually kind of like having the evidence speak for itself and let the evidence do its own persuading and just have some kind of methodology around that. Um, was anything surprising uh, when you were doing this project? Um, I think like the indigenous side of things was uh, really the most shocking to me, like how much we haven't tapped into that knowledge as, uh, as scientists. And also in terms of scientists who have tapped into that knowledge and, in science, and for scientists that are going to tap into that knowledge in the future to actually really respect the uh, indigenous people that are sharing this knowledge, because it seems that um, in a lot of cases when scientists eventually do get access to this indigenous knowledge in these cultures, um, they'll take they'll take this knowledge, they'll study it, um, they'll study in their lab, and then they like, you know, run off and tell the world, look what I found. And it's like, well, you know what? <laughs> like indigenous people have been using this for thousands of years and we can't just act like this, this is just something you stumbled upon. And so um, I think uh, those were some of the bigger factors that I just was oblivious to, to be honest. Like I didn't really realize that that was kind of, um, that that was even really going on, um, that that scientists weren't necessarily, not, not saying all scientists blanket statement, I'm just saying there were, there are scientists that aren't necessarily respecting the source of that knowledge, um, but also uh, just the richness of it. Uh, there's, there's a lot we have to learn and it's just, it's, the knowledge is here, we just need to access it. I, I tend to romanticize it a bit, but I see it as like, it's a, it's a system of wisdom and a system of decision making and 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 um, sort of like distilling knowledge upwards uh, for a decision maker to use that is a, a such a, a cultural element we're we're missing in our absolutely uh, seemingly um, okay so lastly where can people find the course on science literacy it's just a, it's on Coursera so I'm pretty sure if you just like go in go on to Coursera and then like Google and then go into the search science literacy I'm pretty sure it's the only course that is science literacy um, it, and so. it is. And, and I also found it through the University of Alberta. So anybody listening okay. can also find it through that if you want to Google scientific literacy and, and U of A. Um, it is possible to find it. I will. Uh, I, I started it. And um, one of these days, I'll eventually beat the first practice quiz. But oh, yeah. um, I think there's actually an error on my end on the on the answer key. I got to fix it. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you for being upfront about that. That was yeah, probably yeah, the yeah, one no. thing that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, <laughs> It's, it's a fantastic course and, and I'm actually really enjoying it. I, I love cool. the energy um, and yeah, it's, it lays everything out. This is good for people to know about how to choose good leaders for how to get and receive and, and, you know, decode information um, yes. and for talking to, to other people. So I, I really appreciate your time, uh, Claire, and please have a, have a good day. Take you care. too. Thanks for meeting with me too, Mark.